Well, it is good to worship with you. We've committed this summer to come to the Psalms, the songbook of Israel, and ask large questions of life and of God. Please grab a copy of the scriptures if you haven't already and turn to Psalm chapter 10. And if you are here and you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'd love to give one to you for free. There's Bibles in the back as you come in. Feel free to take one. That's a gift from us to you. And our sermon title this morning is, When God Seems Far Off. Or in your bulletin it says, Where is God? And that's because I messed up. (laughs) So, uh, Where is God when God seems far off? Same thing, same sermon, same title. And I wonder, do you have categories for this in your life? God seeming far away? We have some options here. We can say, no, no, God is never far off and pretend, rather self-righteously I may add, that we never have thoughts, doubts, and fears that perhaps that we've been abandoned, that perhaps he doesn't really exist or really love us. Or, like the biblical writers, we can honestly admit that these are real questions we consider, and even a life of faith is one that seeks empirical proof that God is real and that he cares. Because here is where the faithful follower of Christ and the atheist agree. Our looming circumstances color the way we see the world. Life at times causes all of us to question, to wonder, and to even cry out. God, are you real? God, why are you so far off? Well, what we find to be the consistent teaching of the Scriptures throughout the Old and New Testament is that God is sovereignly in control. And my main point this morning is simply this. Christ is still King. Could this be true? Could God really be controlling all things, even the terrible things that I see in my life and the world around me? This may raise more questions, so let's go to God's Word. Psalm 10, this song, and observe how God uses one writer's struggle to bring clarity to you and I. Would you read with me, please, Psalm 10, and uh, I'll read all 18 verses. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, All his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. 
throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But if you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the Word of God. First, in our psalm, in this song, we have the question in verse 1. And the question is, why? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in the midst of trouble, in the times of trouble? Well, we have some clues as to why our psalmist is writing and asking this question. But our artist, our songwriter, he assumes the existence of God. He's been brought up in a Jewish home that taught the Torah, that explained historical narrative events of God's creation of the universe, God's rescue of Israel out of Egypt, and God's steadfast covenant-keeping love to His people. But it seems... It seems that that has all changed now. Well, perhaps it hasn't even changed, but our writer has grown up, maybe like you and I, our writer has grown up with concepts of God that are now being challenged because the world they see is contrary to how they thought God would allow circumstances in life. We'll address this more deeply in a moment, but the crux of the issue for this writer is wicked people doing wicked things. The bad guys overtaking the good guys. Those who are not just skeptical of God, but those who are hating God seem to do fine, while those who believe and trust God are suffering. And so, God seems far off. 
Why might God seem far off for you and I? Certainly the problem of evil, watching evil and injustice in our world can make us wonder where God is or if he exists. Often it is a battle of the relationship between feeling and truth. There are things I know intellectually to be true, but I don't always feel it. I know my spouse loves me. At least that's what I tell her to think. Like, please, love, love me. I know, I know my spouse loves me, but when I have a day where maybe I've messed up, I may not feel that she loves me. I know creation and this world is a kind gift to enjoy. But after a double bogey in playing on a golf course, I'm not feeling it. I know I'm made. I I know intellectually that I'm made in God's image and I am valuable. But I don't feel it in the midst of awkward relationships or when I feel like an outsider at school with my peers. Right, kids? You don't feel it. In the same way, we may know that the Scriptures teach that God is here and always present. He does say in Jeremiah 23, Do I not fill heaven and earth? See, God is ever-present, always here, but in our circumstances, we at times don't feel like He is near. He may not stand far away theologically, but in my experience, in my perception, in my mind, he's not here. How could he be? How could he be here? Don't you see what I'm going through? You see, we echo a statement about God hiding because we find ourselves often looking for some kind of evidence. God, I'm looking. I'm looking for signs. I'm looking for a burning bush. I'm looking for evidence that you are here right now. And aren't you glad that you're not the only one asking these questions? Aren't you glad that other faithful followers of Christ, even biblical writers, wonder why, as God seems far off? I've said this before. There is a healthy desperation to the Christian life. When I'm in the midst of my circumstance, feeling dry, wrestling with fear and doubt, anger and unmet expectations, my questioning of God's presence in that moment is actually a confession. A confession of dependence. Just as we sang, I need him. I'm wondering where he is because I need him. I confess in this moment I need him. Every day I need him. I'm asking why. I'm asking him to show up because, as we said, in that moment I'm admitting I need. I need something bigger than myself. I I am unable to speak and act into situations and change things. Oh, I need God. So that's the question. Why, God? 
Why are you far off? Why do you seem to be hiding when I'm looking for you? And this naturally leads us next to the problem. Verses 2 through 11 lays out our writer's dilemma. We've alluded to it already. For the psalmist, it's a problem of evil that has them questioning God. Now, we read through it. What are these wicked people like? Well, we read this in our passage in verse 2. We read the wicked are arrogant and hurt the poor. We read in verse 3 that they are boastful and greedy. Verse 4, they proudly mock God. We read in verse 5 that they are prospering despite their evil ways. Verses 8 and 9, they murder and unjustly oppress others. Verse 11, they live as though God won't do anything about it. The problem of evil is simply this. The scriptures teach that God is all-powerful and all-good. But suffering and evil exist. So some posture that either God is not all-powerful or He's not all-good. It's not just a theological question, but a philosophical and an ethical one. And the growing number of nuns, not the ladies in the monastery, but the N-O-N-E-S, those who would categorize themselves as believing nothing religiously, they have the opposite problem. They don't have the problem of evil. They have the problem of good. Here's how one writer explains it. Unless God's standards govern our concept of goodness, there can be no talk of good or evil at all. If there is no personal absolute, values must be based on impersonal things and forces, such as matter, motion, time, and chance. Absolute standards, good and evil, presuppose an absolute person. Without God, there is neither good nor evil. Well, maybe an illustration would be helpful. You tell me that you're a Green Bay Packers fan. And I take your ice cream cone and I smash it on the ground. Because you deserve it. Without an absolute morality coming from a person, the moral giver. You can't argue what I did was good or evil. If there are no personal absolutes and I determine what is right or wrong, I believe what I did was in fact good and nothing that you have can argue against it. Essentially, this is how the wicked are living in Psalm 10. They are arrogantly thinking and acting as though, verse 4, there is no God. There is no basis for right and wrong except what I subjectively determine benefits me. There is no consequence in their mind for their decisions because you can't tell them their actions are evil. In fact, verse 11, if there is no God, well, you'll, you'll just forget or even fail to see what I've done. I can't help but think of John Lennon's song, 
imagine. Released in the early 70s. It goes something like this. Imagine. There's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. Our psalmist doesn't have to imagine. He's encountering a people with no religion, no basis for morality but their own thoughts, and it isn't producing peace, at least not for this writer. And this is the ultimate problem. Brothers and sisters, this is the ultimate problem. Whether it's our own hearts or the hearts of the people around us, we all naturally, according to the Scriptures, have a spiritual blindness in the control center of our minds and our hearts. Our wills are conditioned by a human bent towards self and sin. What the psalmist describes in verses 2 through 11 is the natural condition of not just the people he's having problems with, but it's the natural condition of every one of us. The psalmist has a big view of God, his character, and his power and control in this world. Yet, looking at his heart, looking at the heart of these wicked people, and even us looking at our own hearts this morning, we see things are not as they should be. Well, this leads us now to the request. The psalmist, you and I, we have questions. We have questions of God when He seems far off because this world, our hearts, our circumstances, they are broken and in need of restoration. So, our writer makes a request in verses 12 through 15 that we read. And it's summed up well in verse 12. Look again and read verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. It's a request. It's an appeal. It's a desire for some kind of fixing, restoration, some kind of justice to happen. The word justice gets thrown around quite a bit in our culture today. And the underlying desire for any kind of justice has its roots in this understanding. I look out at the world, my circumstances, or even my own heart, and I see that things are not right. Things are not as I think they should be. It's that sense of rightness that is so natural and basic to every man, every woman, and every child here. Now, not everyone, not everyone's sense of rightness is created equal. A child may cry injustice when the parent says no cookies before dinner. A grandpa may have a rightness of what real music is, and these young kids today just don't get it. But a true sense of biblical justice and rightness is not found in our opinions and preferences, but in the very character of God. 
Look again at the end of verse 14. God is described as the helper of the fatherless. The writer's request for God to not be far off, but to be near and lift his hand and act is not born out of a sense of an inner rightness and an opinion of what justice is. But rather, it's based on the nature of who God is, according to the scriptures. God is one who cares for people made in his image. So the request matches the biblical reality. The song, the prayer, the ask is God. Be true to who you say you are. You hear my questions. You see the problem. So act. Show yourself to be real. (laughs) Notice how the psalmist asks God to act. His request is for God to lift up his hand in verse 12. His request is to show these wicked people that God holds them accountable for their actions in verses 13 and 14. But now in verse 15, there's a call, look again, in verse 15 for broken bones. God, break their arm, crack their skulls, hold them accountable, bring justice in such a way where they are not merely stopped from what they are doing, but perhaps... Perhaps they hurt a little when you stop them. God, stop them and maybe make them cry in pain a little bit too. So we have to ask this question when we come to prayers like this. Is what I'm reading merely descriptive or is it prescriptive? To say another way, am I just reading a song that describes the honest and raw questions and prayers of a faithful follower? Or am I to use this prayer as a prescription for how I should personally pray toward those who don't follow God and are unjustly hurting themselves and others? Part of the problem as we come to these questions is that we often lack a nuance and a full-orbed understanding of the Scriptures. And perhaps we'll have time to more fully cover this conversation in the future. Allow me simply to bend our hearts in this direction. Yes, we should pray for justice. Biblical justice where God lifts his hand to work, to protect, to restore, and to stop those who are doing evil. You should pray that way. And, I put it in bold capital letters, and at the same time, We should pray and view the wicked and evil of this world in light of the character and the teachings of Jesus. So let me read just quickly in Matthew 5 what Jesus has to say. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
As faithful followers of Christ, may God help us to have this full-orbed nuance and understanding of the Scriptures. We pray for God to protect and to stop evil. And we pray and love our enemies and ask God to change their hearts. Well, may the Lord help us to make requests like that as he restores this broken world through the gospel. So we had the question, why? The situation, these evil, wicked people. The request, break some bones, God, stop this. And now we see the reality. I get this from our concluding verses 16 through 18. Like our psalm last week, our writer ends with a hope, a confidence, an earnest expectation that God will work. Last week, like last week, the song, our song, Psalm 10, ends with no clear resolution or restoration. You notice that? Nothing has changed. God has not acted. The wicked still boast, live, and operate as though there is no God and they will not be held accountable. The prayer for fixing, the prayer for rightness and justice has not been met. We're still in the same spot we were in verse 1. But did you notice how the song concludes? Verse 16, God is the true king. Verse 17, God hears prayer and will help. Verse 18, God will bring true biblical justice. You see, my friends, we have here an example of what you and I are called to as faithful followers of Christ. To have a lens on this world that is shaped by the scriptures, by the truth of God's word. Yes, my life in this world may seem to be blowing up before me. But my perception of circumstances are not the final word. It isn't up to me to figure out the mysterious workings of God, the timing of the end of the world, or even be the arbiter of how and when God will choose to bring justice and rightness to a broken humanity. The end of Psalm 10 is the reminder that each of us need this morning. And it is what we should be singing to ourselves, repeating in the bathroom mirror, and pleading to God in prayer when He seems far off. And we wonder whether He's present, caring, real, and at work in our life. The Lord is King forever and ever, verse 16 says. These words are fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8 says this, But of the Son, of Christ, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 1 Timothy 6, He, Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, Jesus is the God-man who came to rescue you and I. He came and lived a perfect life on our behalf. 
He died a sacrificial death in our place on that cross. And he resurrected three days later, conquering sin, conquering death. And he reigns now as king over the hearts of his people. The one who gives life. The one who gives forgiveness and joy to those who trust in him by faith. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope is not that our best life is this one. But the next one with him in the celestial city. In the new heavens and the new earth. My friends, Christ is still king. He is king. And because Christ is still king, I can face tomorrow. Tomorrow's Monday, right? I can face tomorrow because he is king. Because Christ is still king, I can honestly and openly wonder in the midst of my circumstances. Because Christ is still king, I can call out to him and ask him to prove again and again that he's not far off. That he knows He knows the problem of evil I see in my heart and the world around me. And he hears my request for restoration. And as our psalm concludes, because Christ is still king, I can rest and have hope in the midst of it. I have the assurance that the final chapter of God working, him working in human history will be written by him. God help us to live this week in the life that you've been given, in your unique life, in the relationships and the circumstances, with the personal sin you might be wrestling with, with the doubts and the fears, with your own reasons for asking God why. Are you here? Are you real? Do you care? God help us to live this week proclaiming in the midst of the life we've been given that Christ is still king. That is your hope, my friend. He is king. Take your questions to that king. Bring your circumstances to him. Bring your requests to him. Live for him. And if the king seems far off, remember your position in Jesus. You are an adopted child who has access, like a little kid. The king will hear you. The king will receive you. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, this is already true of your life. So God help us to grow in it. Would you pray with me? Father, that is our prayer. That the proclamation of Psalm 10 would be our heartfelt confession. That the Lord is king forever and ever. Yes, we see the problems of this world and of our own heart. Yes, we feel desperate and unable. But we know the scriptures proclaim Jesus reigns. 
So, Lord, Jesus reigning in our life, would it protect us from fear and doubt? Would it assure our hearts when you seem far away? Lord, would you, by your Spirit, show us, prove to us, because we are frail. Prove to us that you're real, that you care, and that you're kind. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.